sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the NATO summit happening in Madrid, Spain. Also going to be talking about uh, uh, a uh, upcoming independence referendum in Scotland. Also going to be touching on how the International Monetary Fund and its loans contribute to bad health outcomes on the African continent. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. Before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, on this day in the struggle in 1966, members of the press and the anti-war left were in attendance at a press conference held by U.S. Army Privates David Samas and Dennis Mora and Private First Class James A. Johnson at Fort Hood, Texas. The three had been notified that they would be deployed to Vietnam, and during the 30-day leave they were granted before leaving, the three announced to the world that they would not go to Vietnam. They stated to the press and other attendees, quote, we represent in our backgrounds a cross section of the Army and of America. James Johnson is a Negro. David Samas is of Lithuanian and Italian parents. Dennis Mora is a Puerto Rican. We speak as American soldiers. We have decided to take a stand against this war, which we consider immoral, illegal, and unjust. They had planned to report to the Oakland Army Terminal as scheduled, but said that under no circumstances would they leave for Vietnam, even if their refusal resulted in courts martials. And they indicated that they didn't only speak for themselves, but they noted that, quote, we have been in the Army long enough to know that we are not the only GIs who feel as we do. Large numbers of men in the service do not understand this war or are against it. They spoke of the pointlessness of the war, saying no one used the word winning anymore because in Vietnam it has no meaning. Our officers just talk about five or ten more years of war with at least half a million of our boys thrown into the grinder. They concluded with the war in Vietnam must be stopped. We want no part of this war of extermination. We oppose the criminal waste of American lives and resources. We refuse to go to Vietnam. But this wasn't a knee-jerk decision by these men. They planned and collaborated with established anti-war civilians and organizations. They contacted leaders of the Du Bois Club, a national youth organization sponsored by the Communist Party USA and named after famed socialist and radical anti-war activist, among other things, W.E.B. Du Bois, and the Fifth Avenue Vietnam Peace Parade Committee. They met with anti-war leaders who supported them and agreed agreed to use their refusal as a call to organize more GIs against the war. And the three were among the first anti-war protesters to connect the struggle for justice at home to the racial injustices played out in the war, saying, quote, we know that Negroes and Puerto Ricans are being drafted and end up in the worst of the fighting all out of proportion to their numbers in the population. And we have firsthand knowledge that these are the ones who have been deprived of decent education and jobs at home. Private Johnson went further and said, the Negro in Vietnam is just helping to defeat what his black brother is fighting for 
in the United States. Ultimately, the unwavering refusal to participate in an unjust war cost the men their freedom as they were all court-martialed in September 1966 and found guilty of insubordination. Samus and Johnson were sentenced to five years in Fort Leavenworth, the military prison, and Mora was sentenced to three. They were supported by the anti-war left during their time, but they were also supported by a large sector of the labor movement. While some labor leaders expressed imperialist pro-war attitudes, rank-and-file workers tended to be more against the war. By the time they were released after serving their sentences, the three men found that they had sparked a whole wave of soldier protests against the Vietnam War. But it wasn't just anti-war activism they inspired with their actions. They also paved the way for other acts of soldier civil disobedience, one of which occurred at the very army base they were originally stationed, at Fort Hood. In 1968, 43 black soldiers there refused to board a transport that would have deployed them to Chicago for riot control at the Democratic National Convention. In the midst of an ongoing draft after 13 years of an increasingly unpopular war, Vietnam, after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., and amid the continued racism, police brutality, and poverty that black people experienced even after the Civil Rights Act had been passed, black soldiers were refusing to uphold an immoral social order. In a statement by one of the men signed a black soldier, Company B, 1st Battalion, 41st Infantry, 2nd Armored Division, Fort Hood, Texas, he explained, take, for example, riot control training. It's a big joke because it itself is part of the problem. For weeks in class, I listened to white first and second lieutenants assail the Negro rioters in response to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. as filthy-mouthed punks and hoodlums who, under the leadership of a self-styled messiah like Rap Brown or Leroy Jones, had brought this country close to anarchy. No one seemed to be aware of any real facts or vaguely familiar with the findings by the President's Commission on Racial Disorder. No one made any attempt to explore the possible causal relation between rioting and the understandable hatred that has mounted as a result of social and economic deprivation. I, as well as others, was tired of hearing nasty words to describe my brothers, but no nasty words used to describe their situation. I agree my people are raising plenty of hell about being treated so badly, but don't expect me to go to Chicago with a bunch of white guys who, after some of our classes, are understandably under the impression that we must stop the barbarians. The Fort Hood 43 were locked up in the base stockade where some reports say they were beaten. They were court-martialed and received sentences of three to six months of hard labor, a forfeiture of two-thirds of their wages, and reductions of rank across the board. And here we are in 2022, and this country is yet again embroiled in an unjust war, this time in Ukraine. Biden has sent an additional 20,000 troops to be stationed in Europe, bringing the total number of reported U.S. troops on the continent to 100,000 to be stationed there indefinitely. They're not engaged in active combat in Ukraine with Russia yet, as far as we know. But the money the Biden administration is pouring into keeping the proxy war in Ukraine against Russia going is mind-boggling. And he announced just today 
at the NATO summit another $800 million in military assistance to Ukraine. All while the economy in this country flatlines and crushes the working class and poor, while there's still a baby formula shortage, while there is still racial inequality, while the Supreme Court is eviscerating citizens' constitutional rights almost as we speak. It is time for us to declare like those soldiers that the war in Ukraine and all U.S. imperialism must be stopped. We want no part of war of extermination. We oppose the criminal waste of lives and resources for war and domination. We refuse to continue to quietly support U.S. forever wars. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Sputnik News journalist and correspondent, Wyatt Reed. Wyatt, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here, Sean and Jackie. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Wyatt, I believe today is the closing day of the 2022 NATO summit in Madrid, Spain. And you're there on the ground in Madrid reporting on this for Sputnik. And uh, it's uh, interesting because I know that in the days leading up to the summit, there were thousands of people that were in the streets uh, in Madrid uh, uh, protesting war and advocating for uh, peace. And so I'm just wondering uh, what have been some of the the major takeaways uh, from this summit so far and how you may see it within the context of the the recent meetings in Brussels with the EU summit and the the G7 in uh, uh, Munich. Yeah, I think this is basically the logical extension of those meetings you just mentioned. They're really kind of all the same thing. Uh, That is to say, they are all an attempt to show, broadcast to the world this kind of European unity uh, in the face of what they describe as these existential threats to the rules-based international order. That was, uh, you know, a phrase that that President Joe Biden came down to uh, in his speech earlier today. He said that this uh, surge in rapid response deployments by uh, by NATO uh, from from the current levels of 40,000 up to 300,000 is part of this attempt to send, quote, an unmistakable message that NATO uh, remains united. And so I think all of this is, is effectively, in some way or another, it's a, it's a messaging exercise and it's an attempt to convince the world that despite these horrific uh, economic consequences that many Western uh, people, working people in the West are facing uh, as a result of their government's um, technically illegal sanctions uh, and unilateral often sanctions on uh, the Russian Federation, which have obviously had had uh, predictably disastrous consequences. Uh, they're an attempt to kind of massage public opinion um, and convince people that even though they're suffering record inflation, uh, record food, food prices, that it's all somehow worth it in the name of uh, confronting this evil sort of Eastern authoritarian threat that they uh, they label Russia and Russian Federation President Vladimir Putin to be. 
Yeah, they're definitely sending a signal that they uh, are in this for the long haul, this being the continued uh, U.S. and Western aggression toward Russia, um, with the announcement of not just uh, increasing the U.S. troops stationed in Europe by 20,000, bringing U.S. troops to 100,000 in Europe, but they're also talking about, uh, they, I mean Biden, uh, also announced that there would be a new army headquarters established in Europe. I mean, that sounds like that's going to cost a lot of money. And where would this be? And why is that such a a big, big uh, issue, uh, this announcement that Biden made uh, at NATO? Yeah, so that would be headquartered in Poland. I uh, actually jumped off a, a conversation with former U.S. Uh, intelligence analyst Scott Ritter, and he actually expressed some very, uh, some, some, some skepticism in terms of just who will make this up, where those troops will come from. Uh, really, any of these expansions that we're talking about that have been announced over the past couple of days, uh, whether that be the two new F-35 squadrons that are supposed to be headquartered in the UK or the two new naval destroyers that are supposed to be headquartered here in Spain, it's unclear exactly where the money is going to come from. Obviously, you know, former U.S. President Trump made quite a big deal for several years over the fact that these European countries are just not paying as much uh, as the United States taxpayer is when it comes to this military hardware. Um, no, no one seems to really know exactly, you know, where these new troops are going to come from and how they're going to uh, be paid for. But I think that's, you know, kind of gotten lost in the bigger picture. It's kind of like, well, you know, who cares? We'll, we'll figure that out as we go along. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. The other uh, major escalation in terms of this remilitarization of Europe back to Cold War levels uh, is the inclusion of Finland and Sweden uh, in NATO. They will effectively become subsumed into the NATO power structure. Uh, in the next couple of days, uh, and that is as a result of this joint memorandum of understanding that was signed by the foreign ministers of Sweden and Finland and Turkey following uh, Swedish and, and Finnish acquiescence to the demands of Turkish President Recep Erdogan. His office said that uh, we got what we wanted, and uh, that's, that's a direct quote there, in terms of in terms of, uh, well, I, I, he should said he said Turkey got what it wanted, and that was uh, basically a wish list that was created by the Turkish government over the past few few weeks. More or less everything that they wanted in terms of, of Swedish and Finnish policy. So the actual list there was Sweden and Finland will lift their arms embargo on Turkey. Uh, both of them will support. The Turkish stance on the PKK, that's the Kurdish Workers' Party, and stop supporting the armed offshoot, the YPG, and they will amend their laws on terrorism. So we really have, you know, now at least two European countries basically having their own laws dictated to them by Turkey, which uh, massive human rights violations historically. Uh, it's difficult to say, even if, if Turkey were to attempt to try to get into NATO uh, today, whether or not they would even be allowed because of just the the sheer volume of uh, alleged human rights abuses that have been carried out by them or by their proxies in Syria. I mean, 
We have some pretty clear links to between Turkey and uh, ISIS even. So, what you know, this is now apparently who's dictating the terrorism policy um, in, in Sweden and Finland. Uh, there, there are also uh, new um, <clears throat> new uh, mechanisms by which these countries will share intelligence with each other. They're going to extradite their terrorist suspects to Turkey. And so far, that's already seen at least 33 people named, and they are more than likely going to be arrested and then shipped off to Turkey on, you know, dubious grounds. Uh, this has seen already uh, responses from lawmakers uh, in those countries who denounce this as uh, one, one independent Swedish lawmaker uh, and, and Kurdish uh, advocate named Amina Kakabeva said that this is a black day in Swedish political history. We're negotiating with a regime which does not respect freedom of expression or the rights of minority groups. So this is, you know, apparently the cost that that NATO was willing to pay uh, in order to secure this sort of northern flank of NATO. But I think it's kind of messaging again, because functionally, Sweden and Finland were already more or less NATO members. They had extensive collaboration with the rest of the bloc. And, you know, it's kind of like Ukraine itself. It became a de facto NATO state long ago, even though it technically isn't. It's still on the receiving end of billions and billions of weapons long before the special military operation kicked off in February, and it's still uh, been receiving agents of Western intelligence agencies who've been basically modernizing their army on behalf of NATO. So, uh, you know, I think this is this is another basically it's it's very symbolic in the sense that it's more or less the death of the idea of European strategic autonomy. Now they are taking a back seat to the U.S. and NATO once and for all, formally kind of deciding that's the path that they're headed on. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think you're correct, Why, when you talk about how all of these recent um, global meanings seem to basically have the same program, which, you know, the two major points seem to be attacking Russia, of course, through the proxy of Ukraine and also on uh, China. And one of the developments of uh, the NATO summit this year was NATO uh, declaring a, a security challenge for the, the first time and NATO listing China as one of its uh, basically uh, strategic priorities around what they call Beijing quote, coercive policies and things like this with their um, sort of proposals being laid out in something called the uh, uh, strategic concept. Uh, Could you break down how you see China sort of factoring into the uh, uh, sort of machinations of NATO at this point, particularly around uh, the war in Ukraine? Yeah, absolutely. The this marks a, a massive shift in terms of NATO's purported reason for existence. And that it's always been kind of proposed as this NATO, uh, as this defensive alliance, which is here to protect, you know, the good and democratic, uh, nice West from the evil authoritarian, brutal Russians. And this is generally, for, you know, since NATO's uh, inception, been kind of the the, the the way that it's presented. Now, all of a sudden, we're adding China to this list of so-called authoritarian actors. They say that China is using its economic leverage to create strategic dependencies and enhance its influence. Uh, I mean, can you imagine where they got the idea for something like that? And they, they said that the deepening strategic partnership between the People's Republic of China and the Russian Federation 
and their mutually reinforcing attempts to undercut the rules-based international order run counter to our values and interests. So that's the uh, the the way that this is being portrayed. They have included, uh, as a result, in an observer status, Australia, Japan, New Zealand, and South Korea. They are, for the first time, joining uh, the rest of the NATO bloc at one of these summits. And I can't help but view that as, as an intentional effort in terms of the long-term strategy here to branch out and turn NATO in from a de facto anti-Russian alliance to a de facto anti-Eastern alliance. Basically, any challenge, any uh, any country that dares grow too large and too independent uh, is now effectively going to be targeted by this supposedly defensive alliance. Yeah, and, you know, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said, interestingly enough, that on the one hand, China is not our adversary, but we must be clear-eyed about the serious challenges it represents. But if China is not your adversary, what challenges is China representing that he could be talking about, particularly as he said that China is substantially building up its military forces, including nuclear weapons, bullying its neighbors, threatening Taiwan. And and these are all things that the U.S. and NATO are doing, that they are accusing China of doing. But while Stoltenberg says at the same time, but China's not our adversary, because it seems to me that he's giving away the plot. Like, they know they're Mm. lying, but that mm-hmm. they have to throw out some some kind of excuse for pivoting toward uh, this adversarial attitude that now NATO has toward China. Right. He's playing word games. But in actuality, I don't think there is very much appetite for a full-on military confrontation, proxy war kind of situation between uh, Europe and between China. I think they are already paying the price for these unilateral sanctions that have been imposed on Russia, which have forced gasoline fuel prices to shoot through the roof, which has made food prices do the same. And now, I mean, here in Spain, for example, this month, inflation reached over 10 percent. It's the highest that it's been in 37 years. You can see that there is outrage. There is anger. Thousands of people came out on the streets on Monday to denounce uh, continued Spanish participation in NATO, to call on their country to withdraw from this military bloc. And, you know, there's really just not any registering of that on the on the part of the Spanish government. I think you have a kind of similar situation here uh, in ter- when you just go out on the street. You see this entire city has been militarized effectively. There are huge police checkpoints set up all over the place. You go to the wrong part of town at the wrong day, you just get stuck there and it'll take you hours to navigate around these things. I think that's that's kind of a metaphor for what NATO is to working people here in Spain, here throughout the continent, and obviously in the US as well. It's something that is imposed on people from above. They don't really have any say in it, uh, but it does dictate what happens in their lives, whether they like it or not. And, you know, this 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 new statement in terms of, you know, China is not actually our enemy. Well, it's Russia shouldn't be our enemy. China shouldn't be our enemy. None of these people, uh, you know, Russians and Chinese people aren't our enemies. They are just normal people trying to 
trying to live their lives. And, you know, I think the reality is that uh, working people in all these countries have quite a bit more in common uh, than they do with, uh, you know, we do with our own ruling class. Yeah, I definitely think that's the case. And I mean, when you look at the fact that we see these mass demonstrations at the NATO summit, at the G7 and um, at at the EU summit, I mean, to me, Wyatt, I mean, that sort of reveals uh, uh, the ongoing impacts, the economic impacts of the uh, Ukraine war and how that's being felt most sharply uh, by the masses of poor and working people in these different countries. And it feels that um, these governments in the West, led by the U.S., are so uh, gung-ho, and even though they're very aware of the consequences it has for its own people, it it's like fully bought in, 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 in a way, maybe have even uh, painted itself into a corner as it regards uh, their role in the war in Ukraine. And so, I mean, do you think that this kind of internal pressure will continue to be an issue the more that these governments seem, you know, hell-bent on maintaining this course as it pertains to Ukraine? Insofar as these governments actually represent the people they purport to represent, I I would hope so. Uh, So far, we've seen a lot of countries get away with basically just ignoring this um, and blaming, you know, Biden blames the quote unquote Putin price hike, even though no one seems to believe in it. He just keeps on saying it, keeps on saying it as if he's trying to will it into reality. And I think you have the pretty similar dynamic over here. People just kind of sticking to these talking points no matter what and no matter how silly it sounds to the rest of us, this is the course for now. We are in a in it for the long haul. Uh, and, you know, you hear Biden administration officials talk about it. We're in it to win it, even though uh, by their own uh, by their own recognition, this is not turning out in their favor. Russia is winning this conflict and uh, they that doesn't really seem to have much of an impact, though, uh, on in terms of the public policy. I I'm I'm reading a, a CNN article here from just a couple of days ago that says, you know, the headline here is Biden officials privately doubt that Ukraine can win back all of its territory, and that's I think a recognition of reality that's long overdue. And then you even have uh, CNN quoting a congressional aide who says whether Ukraine can take back these territories is in large part, if not entirely, a function of how much support we give them, which is pretty obviously a recognition of what you and and I and uh, really all of us who consider ourselves to be anti-imperialists have been saying for several months, and that is this is not, you know, some plucky Ukrainians standing up for themselves and defiantly resisting a country 10 times their size. No, this is the entirety of the Western world launching a proxy war against Russia and failing. And, you know, now they don't really know uh, what to do about that. So instead, we get these very, uh, these very concerned proclamations, these, you know, defiant sort of insistences that we'll do whatever it takes. Um, And really, these aren't the people who are going to have to pay the price. These people here in Madrid are enjoying they're fine five course meals in the rooftop bar of the Four Seasons. They're not uh, the people that are actually going to have to deal with this record double digit inflation, with these fuel prices that have shot uh, gasoline prices up in at least the dollar in every country that I've been to in you know over the past few weeks. So uh, you know they seem to be doing just fine. Uh, whether or not working people here will be able to weather 
this storm that their own leaders have brought on them remains to be seen. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Wyatt, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about a announcement about a independence referendum in Scotland. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Kenneth Surin, Professor Emeritus and former director of the Center for European Studies at Duke University. Dr. Surin, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Absolutely. And Dr. Surin, uh, this week, Scotland's first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, announced uh, plans for a referendum next year on the independence of Scotland, uh, telling members of the Scottish Parliament on Tuesday, quote, now is the time at this crucial moment in history to debate and decide the future of our country. And Dr. Surin, I was hoping you could help us understand sort of the political context for uh, uh, why Nicola Sturgeon would want to uh, announce this uh, referendum a year in advance. And what do you think it sort of evidences about uh, politics inside Scotland right now? Uh, well, I think there are several factors which are uh, behind this development. Uh, first of all, I think in the broader context, um, we have to take into account that Boris Johnson, the prime minister, has really not shown much interest um, in the component parts of the uh, uh, the United Kingdom. Um, Northern Ireland, we know, is at a best because of the decision by his government uh, to breach the protocol that it has with the EU. Um, Wales uh, has a Labour government, let's not forget, uh, at least in terms of uh, its parliamentary representation within Wales. And Scotland, uh, he's basically regarded it as um, maybe another colony. So overall, Johnson's prime ministership has been very England-centric, um, and that has caused discontent uh, amongst the other components that I've just uh, referred to. Second, of course, uh, Johnson has been reeling from scandal after scandal. His personal standing within the party is not strong. Um, and there are challenges to his leadership. So this is a moment, I think, when Nicholas Sturgeon has said um, he's weak, um, and this is the time where uh, we make the equivalent of a full-court press on him. Uh, there are other factors, uh, of course. Um, the fact that COVID, for example, uh, was mishandled throughout the United Kingdom. Uh, it was... Uh, tainted with corruption uh, and so on. And this was reflected in the fact that um, support for an independence referendum uh, 
uh, in Scotland, with uh, this is the Scottish people being polled, is just under 50 percent now. At the height of the COVID pandemic, it was 58 percent. So uh, there, there is still much dissatisfaction with uh, the way Boris Johnson handled the uh, uh, the COVID pandemic. And then uh, there are other things like the status of the UK's nuclear deterrent, which is based in Scotland. Um, and uh, Boris Johnson has proposed boosting that, basically making the decision unilaterally without consulting uh, the Scottish government. So I think that and uh, other factors which I can't recall uh, immediately at the moment um, are the background to this situation. And it seems, uh, you know, Dr. Siren, that so much is against uh, this referendum being approved, because even though uh, the approval rating or the desire for the referendum uh, is just under 50 percent, as you said, uh, the indications are that it's slim to uh, none that the Supreme Court would rule in favor of this plan. But it would still be a a crafty political move. And and what do you think is uh, Sturgeon's uh, calculation, even if uh, the Supreme Court rules against a referendum being held? Um, Well, you're absolutely right on that point. Um, I think Sturgeon, who's a lawyer herself, knows full well that this is not going to be uh, passed by the Supreme Court. Uh, as things stand, stand um, any decision taken which affects the relationship between Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom has to be decided by the Central Parliament in Westminster and cannot be decided by the Scottish Parliament uh, in Edinburgh. So uh, really, uh, there is no legal standing uh, behind this call for a referendum. But I think what it, this does is that it keeps on the boil uh, the, uh, the post-independent, I mean, the, the pro-independence movement in Scotland. Um, so even if it fails uh, in its legal objective, it will succeed uh, politically in keeping uh, keeping up public interest uh, on this issue. Now, the other calculation uh, likely behind Sturgeon's decision is this, that um, the UK general election will take place in 2024. And Sturgeon, I think, has made it quite clear that if the Supreme Court uh, decides against the referendum, she will treat the general election in 2024 as a de facto referendum. In other words, she will say that where Scotland is concerned, as you vote in the general election, of course, uh, the United King, the rest of the United Kingdom will be involved in this election as well, but absolutely central to uh, the Scottish National Party's agenda for that election will be Scottish independence. So treat it as a de facto 
referendum on our independence. Yeah, and you've touched on this uh, a little bit, uh, Dr. Sermon, but how do you see this uh, proposal uh, rippling uh, politically uh, throughout uh, other parts uh, of the U.K.? And, I mean, do you think that there are dynamics happening throughout the U.K. that uh, uh, may be motivating this move as well? Well, some people will say that uh, the northern English uh, counties, which are adjacent to Scotland, uh, and who've been very badly treated by um, not just the Conservative Party, but also the Labour Party, they've basically been overlooked um, ever since uh, the north of England was severely affected by Thatcherite uh, post-industrialism. I think what this also does uh, is to show uh, those parts of the country that they, although they are English, are getting a raw deal from Westminster. Now, you see, the situation in Scotland is much more of a social democratic entity than the rest of the UK. Um, medical treatment in the Scottish NHS is still basically free. You certainly can't say that about the English part of the NHS. Uh, Education, higher education in Scotland is tuition free. Uh, You have to pay $9,000 per year if you attend, in tuition, if you attend an English university. So uh, really these people in the north of England who have long been dissatisfied with their position within the United Kingdom are saying to themselves, you know, look at these Scottish people. They really um, are getting it much better than we are. And then, of course, the north of England, uh, in in terms of electoral uh, agendas, is very much in play at the moment. Boris Johnson won a substantial number of Labour seats there, the so-called red ball, in the general election in 2019. And, of course, he's now taken those seats for granted. Labour wants to win them back, but under Keir Starmer, Labour has moved to being a a neoliberal party and does not contain a vestige of social democracy within it. So... uh, Things are volatile electorally uh, in the north of England, and I think it's in Sturgeon's interest to let it remain that way. And electorally, you know, as you point out, things are volatile. I do wonder about economically. How does Brexit um, factor into uh, the Scottish pursuit of self-determination and independence? Because, you know, while it's it's interesting to hear or read that uh, Boris Johnson is— uh, is uh, is is very unpopular because he is from the upper crust, but he's also quite boorish. He's unpopular for both of those reasons. I mean, there is the issue of Brexit that does make it seems like the the issue of Scottish independence uh, complicated. Uh, yeah, well, you're absolutely right. Uh, we must not forget that in the two uh, t- in the 2016. Uh, uh, Brexit referendum, Scotland voted against Brexit. Um, the Scots basically uh, 
came to the determination that belonging to the EU gave it some kind of bulwark uh, against an overweening uh, and overpowerful uh, Westminster Parliament. So um, Scotland is very much pro-Brexit. Um, economically, it makes sense, um, because what we know now, uh, seeing more of the fallout of Brexit, is that really uh, Boris Johnson, in his haste to get Brexit done, that was his slogan, get Brexit done, re- signed up to what was really a bum deal. Um, and uh, he didn't read the fine print, but hence the problem with the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, he ignored um, economic studies which said there would be considerable problems uh, in trade between the now uh, non-EU member United Kingdom and the EU itself. I mean, to put it in the simplest possible terms, uh, if you have obtained a divorce from your uh, your largest trading partner who is absolutely adjacent to you, uh, 22 miles apart to France, etc., etc., and you're putting obstacles in the way of that relationship with your largest trading partner, you are basically shooting yourself in the foot economically. And more and more Brits have come to this realization as they see the consequences of the implementation of Brexit. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Surin, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how the IMF undermines health on the African continent. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dion Maria Blandina, a medical doctor, researcher and health activist. Dion, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, good to be here. Absolutely. And it's good to have you, Dion. And of course, like much of the global south, uh, the African continent continues to be hit uh, uh, quite hard by the coronavirus pandemic, where there are these sorts of interlocking health, economic, social and political uh, uh, complications and consequences that seem to be a sort of raging all at once. And a lot of the suffering and social impact of this kind of thing seems to be directly connected to a lot of the economic situations of a lot of countries on the African continent through institutions like the International Monetary Fund or the IMF. And you recently published a piece about this on uh, People's uh, Dispatch, Dion. And I was hoping you could help us understand what is the connection between these IMF loans and uh, health outcomes on the African continent? Well, 
the IMF often gives loans uh, uh, not freely. Uh, they impose conditions uh, to these loans, and usually there is a policy prescriptions attached to it. And a lot of it has to do with cuts in government spending to reduce the deficit uh, in, in their budgets. So because of this reduced um, spending, uh, government spending all across the board, uh, that also affect the health, social and education sector. And I would say probably the most uh, affected because in the mainstream economics these days, um, these health, social sectors, they're often seen as a wasteful sector, non-profitable. Uh, you will keep spending and you need to spend a lot of it. And meanwhile, the government need to make some uh, money, uh, uh, increase the income to increase the economic growth. Uh, so, yeah, a, lo a lot of the cuts are spent there. And this creates a weakening of the health system uh, in many countries. Uh, but I would say Africa, most especially, uh, are affected uh, since um, I think in Africa, many of the African countries gained their independence in the 60s, 70s. And right after that, like not long, like 10 years, maybe even less after that, immediately they're tangled up in a debt crisis and then uh, into the IMF and World Bank loans as well uh, with these prescribed policies. And they could be very stringent. And it's very dangerous because these countries are just gaining their independence. Some are still facing conflicts and wars. If anything, they need to do a lot more spending and they probably wouldn't see the return of that spending for many years to come, probably generations. And they have not been allowed to uh, make that choice, I would say. And that impacts to the uh, pandemic response that we are seeing now. So it's much longer story. It's a decades in the make making. Yeah, the pandemic response in particular is troubling since the IMF uh, issued COVID-19 loans to 81 countries, 41 of which were in Africa. And it seems to me that when we are talking about a global pandemic, you just help people and you don't give them a loan. But that is what the IMF did. But that didn't actually help the situation in those uh, in those countries, those loans didn't help those countries meet their COVID-19 needs and certainly didn't help them meet their long-term needs. And why was that? Um, I don't know why that is, but um, that is how it's always been. And the IMF and the World Bank has always maintained that they are not charity institutions. It's business, even though they are a UN agency. Yeah, so it's loan, and I agree with you. I mean, uh, um, countries would need aid at the moment uh, when hit with a pandemic, not loans. And we see this uh, happening with the IMF, but also with World Bank. I mean, uh, in Africa, you're having difficulty handling, handling the pandemic also because of uh, lack of vaccines, uh, lack of funding to buy the vaccines as well. And instead of, uh, you know, uh, releasing the patents, so the countries in Africa can produce the vaccines themselves. Uh, instead, they give loans to buy vaccines. I'm sure the conditions is favorable, but it's still it's a loan. You know, you know what I mean. 
Yeah, definitely. And I was hoping you could also say something about how these uh, conditionalities that a lot of these loans have um, sort of uh, connect to this whole piece. When we talk about austerity and the whole program of privatization and often deregulation that happens with these um, kinds of loans and things like that. I mean, how do these condition uh, conditionalities sort of uh, uh, factor into how these loans play out on in these African countries? Um, right. Yeah. So, for example, when you cut the spending, like pro- public health programs, most especially uh, the ones that are deemed wasteful, uh, they're cut first. So education, public education, counseling, all those that, that are important for the societies, uh, those are cut first. Uh, and then uh, the move towards privatization, like here, you, you know, the way the, the IMF and uh, the international financial financial institutions say, uh, approach it is that, well, the government can't uh, afford it, it's okay, but here's the private sector, you know, you can, you can uh, still meet uh, what the people need for healthcare through the private sector. But then again, the private sector are mainly pro- uh, for profit. Uh, I'm talking about the for-profit sector. They're also non-profit, but um, we're not going to go there <laughs> just to confuse the point. But the private sector, as in the private uh, sector for hospitals, clinics, health insurance, they have a prof- profit motive. And like, for example, in the hospitals themselves, um, I don't know if you know, but the emergency award and the IC award in hospitals, they are not really profitable. They are very, very expensive to maintain. So private hospitals usually have small emergencies and small ICU. And guess what we need for the pandemic? Large emergencies and large ICUs and many beds, right? And so for decades also, especially in Africa, because of the cut in government spending, you never have enough money to build a proper uh, public health system. Good hospitals, not just in the cities, but also in other districts, districts that can cater to the uh, people. This also impacts the access. When you need it for the pandemic like this, you don't have that public health uh, hospital, public hospitals that can cater to large number of people. Instead, you have private hospitals with limited space in the emergency and the ICUs as well. So then, again, because of the governments are tied up in debt already and uh, have to implement austerity, uh, they cannot freely uh, suddenly build the necessary um, public facilities and it takes time, not just money, but uh, the money was uh, in, in the first place is not there to immediately build the facilities that the people need. Uh, that, that would include for testing, not just hospital, but clinics, primary care, etc. Yeah, in addition to uh, the conditions, these conditions that you just mentioned, there is something called an IMF riot that makes this situation even worse for health outcomes in these countries that are under these IMF loans. What is an IMF riot and why does it make these situations that are already bad even worse? 
IMF riot is a reaction uh, from the people usually because um, in a lot of developing countries, there are a lot of subsidies for the population, most especially in um, staple food and fuel. So uh, in the austerity package pushed by the IMF, usually um, they're against subsidy. Uh, subsidy is a burden for the government, so it needs to be cut. Uh, there's there's a whole of an economics reasoning for the for that, um, but uh, the the key here is the timing. And when you already plunge in a crisis, uh, a crisis doesn't happen uh, all of a sudden. So usually, for the majority of people, especially in the lower socioeconomic strata, you've been struggling for a long, long time. And then it ref it's reflected at some point in the government account, and then it became a crisis. But the suffering was already there, that's what I mean. So then when, they, when the IMF come in and put these austerity policies and force the government, no, you have to take away the subsidy to balance your numbers, your accounts. Uh, for, for the IMF, it's a simple matter of number, but for the people, it is not. It is a social contract between them and the government that the government can still um, give something to the people. And when this is taken away, when all, their situation is already so hard, of course the people get angry. Like, how else are they supposed to live? Right? A lot of them are already unemployed. A lot of them already don't have uh, access to health care and they have sick children and families. And most often when the crisis hit, the children are already taken out of school. The girls married off. The boys are off you know, working somewhere because they need to scrap for money. And then you take away this subsidy, this what little they have. It, it's, it's, it's not rocket science. People become angry. So this is a well-known phenomenon for, uh, in the 80s and 90s uh, in when IMF and World Bank imposed a program called Structural Adjustment Program, which was very, very stringent. And they claim uh, that you know they have changed their ways, but we, see, we still see the same pattern. And they claim that IMF riots don't happen anymore because now the conditions and the measures are communicated better from the government but i i don't i don't see that i mean if you pay attention it's still happening everywhere especially now when we're hit with multiple crises all these imf riots are you know rearing their heads all over the world Definitely. And on that note, Dion, I mean, when we see the um, incidents of these IMF riots and the sort of very clear social impacts from how these uh, uh, loans are perpetrated from institutions like the IMF, I mean, you know, in our last minute or so, I mean, what do you think this means sort of for the future for uh, health in, in many of these countries if we continue to see these uh, uh, loans with all these conditions and the way that, I mean, they were having an impact on the people negatively before? before the pandemic, like you say, but now it just feels like they've jumped sort of from the frying pan into the fire, if you will. Well, I would say right now it's bad news for health. I mean, we could already see it with all the conflicts rising up everywhere, the economics uh, hardship. I mean, COVID-19 is still actually going on and the mutations are, you know, becoming uh, spread more and develop more mutations. And that, that already fell off the agenda of everyone. You know, it's like the pandemic is over and now we need to move on. 
you know so it's it's bad like we, we it's not health kept fall uh, health issues kept falling back because of all the situations definitely well we thank you so much Dion for joining us today we're gonna leave it there and move to a break here on by any means necessary on radio Sputnik in Washington DC we'll be right back so please stay with us by any means necessary Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, June 30th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, Liber, by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on this show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary here in Washington. In DC. You can do that by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital and you can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. Rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202 That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities of Ecuador, or CONAI, um, has ended uh, their 18-day uninterrupted national strike, declaring an end to the protest after reaching an agreement with representatives of the government of President Guillermo Lasso. And there was a press conference that was held in Quito that said both uh, sides have reached some agreements, including that all governors must intensify control operations to prevent and eradicate price speculation. Um, the national government has declared that the health system in an emergency. Price of gasoline has been reduced. And as a result of this decision, the price of uh, gasoline and the price of diesel will both reflect that uh, the Lasso administration is saying they're committed to repealing the state of emergency that's in place and a number of things. So I want to say congratulations to uh, the indigenous struggle there inside Ecuador. Also want to wish a happy birthday to Daruba Ben Wahad, a former Black Panther and Black Liberation Army leader who was born on this day 77 years ago. And we 
we've had the pleasure of talking to Daruba a number of times here by any means necessary. So we want to wish him the best on his birthday. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Ted Raw, an award-winning editorial cartoonist and columnist and author of the graphic novel, The Stringer. Ted, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sean. Absolutely. And Ted, of course, as abortion rights continue to be under attack here in the United States, uh, there's, I think, quite naturally been a lot of discussion and analysis over, you know, the character of the Supreme Court as an institution and uh, uh, what is to be done and what Democrats and the Joe Biden administration need to do uh, uh, to really affect some kind of uh, critical change uh, uh, here as it pertains to that issue. And I mean, it, it, it seems like all we're really hearing from Biden and the Democrats besides, you know, begging for uh, uh, votes and money is, you know, this uh, w- w- what we see Joe Biden talking about in terms of supporting an exception to the filibuster rule in order to codify uh, Roe v. Wade. And what a lot of people have been pointing out is that um, the Democrats have had uh, a number of chances to, to codify uh, Roe v. Wade for some time and have always refused to up until and including that of the, you know, supposedly progressive Barack Obama. And of course, Joe Biden himself has his own uh, a spotty record when it comes to abortion rights to begin with. And you recently published a piece about this for your website, raw.com, talking about how, you know, the, the Supreme Court and the whole issue on abortion rights as it pertains to the Democrats and how that's unfolding and how, you know, progressive minded people should be responding to it. And so I'm wondering how you're sort of analyzing it all at this point. Uh, uh, Ted, as we continue to see uh, intense protests and demonstrations around uh, abortion rights in the Supreme Court? Well, what I find super interesting, and uh, I thought that it would be really interesting to talk to you guys about it, because you have this kind of, uh, you know, class analysis, um, is that this really kind of exposes um, the fact that we need, you know, a grassroots left-wing radical organization that can mobilize people because no matter how you cut it um if you know it's in i i'm you know very pro-choice i think uh you know what happened uh was a travesty albeit not a surprising one because the truth is that the, the court decision in the first place from 1973 was very shaky constitutionally and we really needed a federal law legalizing abortion the way that other countries like ireland have in order to uh legalize abortion in those countries so that it wasn't this right wasn't hanging on this flimsy court decision. And as you point out, the Democrats have certainly had their chance to do it and chose not to for a variety of reasons, none of them good, in my opinion. Uh, and what I, what I think is so uh, compelling here is that you, know, you can sort of see that there's within the, ex- the existing political construct, there's no way really for there to be an effective quick turnaround. I mean, within this system, about the only thing that really anyone can help for is either uh, some kind of radical shift to, um, to the, to, towards the Democrats in the United States Senate, which would give them, say, 62 or more Senate seats, which I think is impossible to imagine currently any time in the near future. Uh, and then following that, you would need to have uh, 
two or three deaths of Supreme Court justices, um, all of whom, you know, many of whom are, are quite young. They're in their 50s. So you're really looking at a strategy that's 30 or 40 years from now. In other words, uh, Democrats who are in, or liberals who are, or progressives who are in favor of abortion rights who need to work within the system are only going to be able to get there within the system by fight, doing what the Republicans did and fight you know, over the last 50 years. It's going to take decades and then maybe with a lot of hard work and, and sustained protest and activism at the, uh, you know, at the grassroots electoral political level, they will get there. And maybe with that and good luck, you know, 30 or 40 years from now, national abortion rights come back. That's obviously completely untenable for all the people who are going to need this procedure in the coming weeks, months and years. So if we had a, um, you know, a graph, a major grassroots uh, left-wing political organization that could take to the streets and rock the conscience of the country, sort of like a Tahrir Square or something like that, um, you know, you, you could go outside of that system and you could force even re some Republican senators to uh, change their mind and get, get a supermajority and pass a federal law. But you're just not going to get there without that kind of organization. This shows this is exactly the kind of issue that catches the attention of, of, you know, of bourgeois people who don't normally pay attention to just how their rights are, are stripped away and who don't normally feel oppressed. So there's just a lot going on. I feel that, that this has stripped away the veneer of, of how the system works for not just working-class people who are well aware of it, but for uh, middle-class people who might be able to feel like they can buy their way out of the most oppressive uh, uh, aspects of this system. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, this is that moment where I, I try not to be that person in the movement who's like, see, told you so. But but it's like it's kind of hard not to be that person in this moment when this Supreme Court is basically laying bare exactly what we have been saying, this system, this government, and quite honestly, the whole Constitution really is. It's, it's, it's just a bunch of flimsy ideas written down on a piece of paper by some people who did not write them to reflect the interests of people who were not like them. And that has always been true. But now we have a Supreme Court that is interpreting that document um, it, from, from an originalist framework, which just kind of confirms that's what, that, that's what it is. They, they didn't intend for people who are not like them to have these rights um, because at the time, according to the Supreme Court decision on Roe, the majority opinion was at the time the the, the Constitution was written, uh, abortion was illegal. Now that that is actually a lie. The fact that the Supreme Court could write an opinion and make a decision based on a lie is also quite typical of this system. But I do think this is that moment where instead of sitting back, Ted, and and saying to 
folks who are not working class and poor, folks who have not been in the streets fighting against certain aspects of oppression in the system, who are now finding themselves now also in the crosshairs of the system. Now is not like that moment to sit back and go, told you so, they were coming for you next, and here we are. Now is that time where we have to... um, connect these issues where we have to connect the struggle uh, against racist police terrorism with the struggle to, uh, uh, you know, to codify and maintain and ensure women's right to control their own production with the fight for workers rights with it. And and that's we, we know it works because at the top of the show, Ted, we just saw it work in Ecuador. Right. I mean, we, we just saw the people take to the streets and force the government to concede to the people's demands. And and this is not something that is outside of the realm of possibility. But I think, Ted, the fact that we pay so little attention to what goes on in the rest of the world, we can't conceive of a situation where we can force this government to do what we want. And I'm wondering how you feel about what what do you think it would take to make the middle class more receptive of joining this struggle? Because, see, we know that they need to join this struggle. I'm, I think I'm kind of mystified on what it is the middle class is waiting to hear or see that would make them more receptive to to, you know, finally getting out here in the streets with us. Yeah, Jackie, I like the fact that you brought up the Ecuador thing. Um, It's totally true that with an international perspective, you can really see how street activism, sustained, radical, militant, uh, does really can have, doesn't always work, but it can work. It's certainly far more effective than working within electoral politics in the U.S. Um, You know, we do have a recent example here domestically in the form of the Black Lives Matter movement. I I think there's almost a direct relationship between uh, the cities where the protests were the most intense uh, and the effectiveness of those protests. I mean, they were sustained uh, due to the unique circumstances of the pandemic, uh, which freed people from having to show up at work in person and allowed them to be out in the streets day after day after day. You know, and, and there was no city in the country where those protests were more intense than in the Minneapolis-St. Paul. And that's where, at least initially, the city council caved uh, and, and promised to uh, you know, eliminate their police department. They rolled that back. But there certainly was a, a movement within the system to respond to that. And, you know, as to the second question you had, like, you know, where, what will it take? I, I'm going to say, and I hate to say this, I don't think that the overturning of Roe v. Wade is going to really be enough because for the middle class, uh, most of them are going to, you know, not be living in states where abortion rights have been repealed. Um, Well, I shouldn't say most of them, but many of them. Um, And the people who are really hurt by this are the people who kind of uh, would have enough money say $500 to scrape together for an abortion procedure, but maybe not another $500 to get to drive to a state and, you know, get a motel for the night where they can get the procedure. And those people, you know, that kind of thin band of people aren't going to get really a lot of support from your sort of typical middle-class person. I think, I think this is sort of a, a yellow light for them. 
for the they you know the bourgeois people they see that the state is coming for them, but and that's something worth noting here. Um, but until but and there will be more, you know, whether it's as Justice Thomas threatens, uh, you know, to get rid of the legalization of contraception. I mean, it's unimaginable that contraception is legal in the United States, not due to a federal law, but due to a court ruling. Um, it's kind of insane, or for that matter, same-sex marriage or any number of other, uh, you know, court decisions that rely on the 14th Amendment. So there's uh, this is a warrant. It's a shot across the bow, but I don't think, I think really fundamentally, um, you know, abortion, federal abortion rights are gone for a generation, and they're not coming back unless there's some kind of major explosion in the streets. Yeah, and and that reminds me of something that you mentioned a little earlier, Ted, when you talked about uh, the importance of looking at this from a class perspective, because, I mean, when we look at patriarchy, right, I mean, that is its own form of class exploitation. And uh, we know that there's a racialized aspect of it, too, because uh, the overturning of abortion rights are going to overwhelmingly impact poor and working and oppressed women in the United States who are mostly black and Latin. You know what I mean? And so I feel like we've been seeing that reflected in the streets in terms of who's really driving a lot of these protests and who's at um, the leadership of a lot of this. And it just seems that if you take the abortion rights issue with um, the issue of race police terror, like we've been saying, and uh, uh, that of climate change and so many other issues uh, impacting uh, poor and working people in the U.S. I mean, it's clear that, I mean, because we were discussing, you know, what might motivate middle class people, but it seems that really a lot of the energy is amongst um, those class elements that stand to most be impacted by it. And I think people have been clear about um, who's going to be uh, most impacted by this uh, from uh, uh, the very beginning. And so it just seems undeniable at this point that we really need a kind of broad uh, working class movement that's addressing abortion rights and women's liberation and uh, so many other things as it becomes more and more clear that all of these issues are emanating out of the same capitalist system. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is yeah, intersection, intersectionalism is, is absolutely key here. And, you know, there's unfortunately there just isn't uh, class consciousness is just not something that's the part. It's, it's not at you know part of of uh, normal electoral Democratic Party politics. And you could say, well, that's because it's electoral party politics. But there's something uniquely American about that. I mean, you know, most uh, European, most Western countries, and a lot of uh, countries in the developing world have electoral politics that are informed. Uh, at least in part, by uh, a class analysis, and we don't. And I think that's kind of like where, where a lot of our intellectually, that's where our, organi- our organizing in this country really needs to start, is in 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 spreading that message that uh, you know if you have uh, people with money are are, are running the show. And and they're not going to give up their prerogatives, and they will use, they will do or say anything to maintain their power and their prerogatives and and their money, obviously. And that you know we have to fight tooth and nail uh, to be treated with a modicum a modicum of respect and and dignity. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington D.C., we'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. 
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Ted Rawl. Um, And Ted, we've been seeing a series of different international meetings and summits taking place here lately. Uh, Last week, uh, uh, there was the EU summit in Brussels, followed by uh, uh, the G7. And now, of course, the NATO summit uh, happening in Madrid as we speak, Uh, all three of them being subject to mass protests of how, you know, these different world leaders and governments want to continue to uh, dump money, weapons and resources into the war in Ukraine uh, as a point of targeting not only Russia, but also China uh, in different ways. And I'm wondering how you're sort of analyzing how the uh, Ukraine war has been treated in the corporate media at this point, Ted, because I mean, quite honestly, as we've discussed at length here on the show, certainly uh, towing the line of the U.S. government and that of Washington and of imperialism, given this sort of very one-sided, decontextualized uh, narrative of uh, what's been going on. But I tend to get the feeling as things continue on a number of levels, opinions seem like they may be shifting on the uh, uh, Ukraine war. A part of me wonders if there aren't uh, uh, some conflicts happening within some of uh, the Western governments or the G7 governments as it pertains to this. But I mean, how are you viewing things at this point, Ted, in terms of the media's role in really uh, ginning up this conflict and why you see that as being necessary from their standpoint? Yes, Sean. I mean, definitely, uh, you know, you you always can tell a lot from the contradictions and conflicts within the ruling classes. And internationally, you can see conflicts. For example, um, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, certainly, uh, you know, not an ally of Russia, certainly not a progressive voice by any means, um, definitely a uh, fervent militarist and capitalist. Nevertheless, um, it seems to be a realist here, and uh, he's made it pretty clear that it's time for peace talks, and uh, it's it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, Ukraine is, has not been able to make any uh, headway against Russia, and that Russia's uh, demands are probably going to have to be met, and uh, that the situation on the on the ground is just not at all the way it's being portrayed in the American media. And that's, you know, the American media is where... Again, we see these divisions. I mean, there's like people like Fareed Zakaria, who are also sort of echoing Macron, saying like, "Look, you know, uh, the triumphalism is cute and everything, but uh, you know, look, it would have been from their point of view, they were they wanted to see Russia defeated by Ukraine. Obviously, that wasn't going to happen. It's not happening. Russia's winning. Um, they're consolidating their their gains in Ukraine, and so." They're having to, you know, to step forward, and and uh, you know these voices are are starting to uh, to come forward more boldly, just to be sort of on the side of on the sign of on the side of like reality, right? So that they have credibility going forward. Uh, whereas there's still the hardcore neocon types like uh, Max Boot at the Washington Post, uh, who are 
uh, continuing to press the line that, you know, Ukraine's winning and Russia's in big trouble. And it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of silly because it's like, it's like that old joke, who are you going to believe me, you know, me or your lying eyes? Um, it's pretty clear, uh, you know, really, uh, just look at a map. That's just not what's happening here. Uh, and um, but it's 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 kind of it's almost laughable, except for the fact that, you know, uh, people people's you know, lives and property are at stake. It does matter. Um, but uh, it's 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 also very you know, it's, it really does expose the extreme extent to which. Uh, the uh, corporate media structure is willing and able to propagandize long after there's any kind of wiggle room or uh, gray area to play in. I mean, you know, they'll, they'll just go out of that and dance right out into the open and just, you know, have a total emperor has no clothes moment and they just don't care. They're totally shameless. Yeah, not only are they shameless, and but as this facade of Ukraine winning the war is clearly, clearly crumbling, um, Biden's a- approval ratings plummet. And according to a recent AP uh, poll, 85 uh, percent of U.S. adults say that the country is on the wrong track. Seventy nine percent describe the economy as poor because, you know, People are broke because of high gas prices, high food prices, because, well, the gas prices, because of uh, uh, oil company um, uh, grifting people. But, I, I mean, all of this is going on. Still got a baby food formula shortage in this country. Uh, folks are still not having any relief from their student loan debt. All of this is going on in this country, all kinds of austerity out there. And what does Joseph Biden announce at the NATO summit, Ted? Another $800 million to Ukraine. I I mean, aside from him digging himself into a hole deeper I didn't think he could, but doggone it, he has. This can't bode well for him and the Democratic Party in the midterms. And as much as it doesn't bode well for the Ukrainians who want this war to end, people around the world who want this war to end, and everybody else on the planet, because the longer this war goes on, the more money the U.S. and its allies pour into Ukraine, the closer we come to a nuclear conflagration. Yeah, that's that's quite right, Jackie. Um, it's it is. Um, I, I saw a remarkable quote on corporate media this morning, where uh, at the at the at the NATO summit, Biden was asked by a reporter, uncharacteristically, a fairly hard question. Um, which was uh, how long are you going to continue to make Americans and other people pay like sky high gas prices in order to support Ukraine and uh, with these sanctions that are really killing the global economy. And he said, as long as it takes. And I, yeah, okay. So most Americans aren't going to see that him say that, but that's the attitude of the administration. If, and if that's the attitude of the administration, uh, no, it doesn't bode well. They're they're looking down the barrel of some serious, catastrophic losses in this in this November and possibly two Novembers from now. Um, you know, it's it's it's. Uh, 
it's a lot to ask. I mean, <laughs> people who are, uh, you know, who are in trouble, who many of whom can't find Ukraine on a map to like to to struggle to see their to take food out of their children's uh, mouths uh, in order to uh, to continue this policy. You know, it's one thing if there's a natural disaster or, you know, an asteroid hits the planet, nobody can help it, um, you know, but this is not like that. This is this is an unforced error. This is something that this administration didn't inherit from anyone else. They, they brought it upon themselves. It was optional. They didn't have to do it. And it's doing them more harm than the targets. So, uh, you know, they're they're going to they're going to pay whether the Republicans don't even have to say anything about it. Uh, the party in power will just be punished at the polls because they're the party in power. And, you know, frankly, they have it coming. Yeah. And speaking of this uh, corporate media coverage, Ted, uh, I mean, you also recently published a piece uh, on your site entitled Trump and Biden are both liars. Only Trump gets called out, um, which uh, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, sort of speaks to, you know, this imbalance and kind of skewed version of reality that we often see uh, uh, from these uh, corporate owned platforms. And uh, it's a part of the reason why I think journalism, as we know, it is in such trouble uh, in the country, not only because of the corporate and, uh, frankly, state-run interest involved, uh, certainly the attacks on real journalists like Julian Assange and Mumia Abu-Jamal are a part and parcel of that as well, and the attack on alternative uh, media platforms under, you know, the the guise of so-called uh, Russian disinformation. I mean, how do you sort of see the way that Biden and Trump uh, have been covered sort of uh, evidencing? Uh, evidencing some of the the most pressing issues within media that we see today. Well, you know what's remarkable, Sean, is that that really, you know, Donald Trump is nobody's idea of like an un- underprivileged guy, right? I right. mean, he's a multi-billionaire, at least on paper. Um, you know, with <laughs> even if he doesn't necessarily have the billions, he certainly has billions in credit, and uh, more, which is more than the rest of us can say, and has an unparalleled mic- uh, megaphone, uh, and, you know, could very well be president again in two years. Um, and that said, uh, he is, a, just because he's got some differences in his approach to particularly international affairs, and he ha- he's skeptical of interventionism and militarism, not that he's completely against them, but he's skeptical and he's not as extreme as the you know, mainstream Democratic Party and the mainstream GOP. Uh, the, the whole system is aligned, you know, the blob, as they call it in Washington, uh, the whole national security state, the, their alliances and corporate media and so on. The blob hates him and is, and is spitting him out. So, you know, that's why you see, and I wrote about this in my column that you're referencing, that's why you see these, like, every time there's an article about Biden, I mean, sorry, about Trump, you know, there's editorializing within the news story. So we'll, you'll hear a, a, you know, something like, you know, uh, President Biden, continue, President Trump continued to press his uh, his his uh, false allegations uh, of the big lie about elec- election, the election having been stolen. Right now, I don't have any <laughs> dispute with the fact that it's a lie. There's no evidence the election was stolen, but they don't do this. 
to anybody else. You know, you never hear uh, anyone say, you know, we never heard anyone say, well, George W. Bush and the Republicans continued to push the narrative that the debunked narrative that Iraq had WMDs or you never heard, you know, for that matter, uh, Biden's planning to visit Saudi Arabia and hang out with uh, the guy who murdered, murdered Jamal Khashoggi, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. And, you know, you don't hear anyone say, you know, uh, there's no headlines that say Biden plans to meet with man who ordered uh, journalist butchered. <laughs> I mean, there's, if they don't speak plainly about anyone but Donald Trump. And it's because they, they're after him in this unique way. He's not, you know, in, in gangster parlance, he's not a made man. He never was and he never will be. Yeah. And and obviously, I think we can add another thing to that list that we're not going to hear about Joe Biden or at least see in corporate media that, you know, he goes uh, he's two faced even with his uh, uh, promises on uh, protecting doing anything to uh, protect women's reproduction, uh, reproductive rights, as he apparently made a deal with Mitch McConnell to appoint an anti-abortion judge to a federal appointment. And I I just, Ted, I just, I don't have any polite words left for Biden or the Democrats. Even as I see, you know, the media and the Biden and, and, and the Democrats are also playing into this with the January 6th hearings, which I think are more campaign ad for them than they are, you know, a pursuit of actual justice. Who knows what the Department of Justice is going to do with all of that information. But I I tell you, there is really nothing that cannot be said that would justify continuing support for the Democratic Party at this point, because there, there are no lesser evils. When Joe Biden is making a deal with the supposed enemy to support to appoint a member of the enemy camp to a lifetime federal appointment for judgeship, I just I don't have any more words, Ted. But uh, it's completely inexcusable. I mean, you know, what's so you know, not so long past has been completely erased uh, in the media narrative, right? Like he he was openly uh, anti-choice for years. He said so. Um, and, you know, that's just we're supposed to forget about that. You know, he was a, a, a racist dog whistler as a senator from Del, a young senator from Delaware in, in a, who opposed court ordered busing. Um, you know, and he could say, well, that wasn't in my heart. Well, but no, one, this is politics. No one cares what's in your heart. That doesn't matter. Uh, you can have evil in your heart, but if you vote the right way, you're you know you're a good person. And um, and <laughs> these guys are not. Um, yeah, it's just the problem is that people, they you know we have we've we've got team politics, and a lot of people will just justify they're in so deep with the Democrats. They'll just continue to vote for them because they hate the Republicans more. And even though they'll say the Democrats disappoint them, they'll say, well, the Republicans are, are even worse. And, and, you know, what else do you want? There's no other choice. And there is another choice. I mean, and I, I, by the way, like third parties like the Greens are definitely a viable choice. And if they're not on the ballot, you can write them in. And I always like to say 
uh, you know, Democrats and Repu- there would be no Democratic or Republican Party if people at one point hadn't been willing to support third parties, because both of them were third parties uh, when they started. And um, so, you know, to say, like, that third parties never go anywhere is just not true. Um, but there's also the option to work outside of electoral politics and withhold your vote. And there's many countries where voter boycotts have a very proud and honorable tradition in terms of affecting social change and, uh, you know, and sort of demonstrating to uh, those who would start political parties and movements that there's a market for it. I mean, you know, you, you can easily imagine sort of like as a theoretical mathematical exercise. If, let's say, voter turnout in the, country, in the United States dropped to 20 percent, well, you know, that would create a lot of space for people to say, wow, there's a lot of people not voting. They used to vote. Uh, you know, maybe we should start a party to appeal to them, you know, in the marketplace of ideas. But as long as you keep throwing your money and your, and your voting support towards either party, including the Democrats, you're endorsing them. You are not just saying, I hate the other guys more. You are, you are giving them your support and they have, they count your votes as symbols of your support and their right to do so. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, Ted, because I feel like the whole voting uh, thing, this this super emphasis on voting while entirely predictable uh, uh, feels like it's just not quite as potent as it once was. I mean, there was this uh, one chant that that I saw amongst uh, uh, some of the protests that were happening following the overturning of the decision, and it said, uh, voting blue is not enough. Uh, Democrats, we call your bluff. Because people picked up on the fact that, you know, in the time immediately after the decision came out, similarly after the uh, 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 draft decision had leaked, the Democrats wasted no time, not even a moment, uh, uh, talking about how people need to vote and handle it in November and, of course, uh, give them money. And, you know, of course, pay no attention to the fact of uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, being the main one saying that, you know, we shouldn't have abortion be a part of the criteria for whether we support Democrats and that we should support Democrats, whether they support abortion rights or not. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, promoting candidates like Henry Quaylar, these uh, anti-abortion candidates and all these sorts of things. And so the Democrats on a lot of fronts have just been uh, doing nothing for so long and not only have refused to fight for these issues or like actively like betraying uh, some of the core sort of progressive values that they swear is is what governs them. And so these the these appeals of, you know, voting and how we have to vote our way out of this. And it doesn't matter if we don't get everything we want or even if we get anything at all that we want is that at this point, we just have to act to keep the Republicans out of office and absolutely nothing else matters. Doesn't matter if the, the Democrat Party are a part of the reason they've been throwing these rights under the bus for all these years. We just have to get in line and vote again. And I really just feel like the mask of that is being ripped off. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, all these calls from Democrats saying that we're somehow going to vote our way after every issue just doesn't seem like it has the same impact as it once did, Ted. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, I think it's still very powerful, but it's it's not as powerful as it used to be. And you can see the crack in the edifice. I mean, you know, it's Democrats could probably control this or mitigate the damage a bit if they were to be honest about what happened in the past, like, for example, in 2009 to 2010, for, for about four months when uh, the Democratic Party had a 60-vote supermajority in the United States Senate. And, uh, you know, rather infamously, then-President Obama said that it was not a 
top legislative um, uh, priority to federally legalize abortion. So in other words, he's making a decision. I'm not spending any political capital or taking any risks on this. I don't know how many risks there really would be, really, uh, but he just didn't want to do it. The point is, like, if the Democratic Party, let's say Obama, who's still a key figure in the party, were to say, you know what, I was wrong back then, really screwed up. Uh, we, re- we really should have done it. Uh, I apologize. If Hillary Clinton said stuff like that, uh, Joe Biden, who was, you know, Biden, who, who was in the room when that decision was made because he was Obama's vice president. Um, you know, if they said, look, we screwed up, but we'll do better. Democrat, we got the message. But the fact that they are not even willing or able to do that really does tell you that, as you know, the infamous quote goes, nothing will fundamentally change because, I mean, there's not, they're not even promising you. I mean, even, you know, even Lucy promised Charlie Brown that she wasn't going to pull the football away. Uh, you know, the Democrats aren't even saying, listen, if we get that chance, you give us 60 votes in the Senate, you know, we will do this. Like, they're not saying that. And that's because it's not true. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch 10 DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Ted Rawl is here. And Ted, you mentioned Barack Obama a moment ago and, you know, how he, you know, uh, basically just tossed the abortion rights to the side uh, during his presidency and even went as far as to saying it was not a priority and that he instead, and this is what happened, you know, would prioritize bailing out the banks while selling out the rest of us. And then when this came down, uh, Barack Obama tweeted out, quote, today, the Supreme Court not only reversed 50 years of precedent, it relegated the most intensely personal decisions someone can make to the whims of politicians and ideologues attacking the essential freedoms of millions of Americans. And so not even acknowledging the fact that he could have done something about this and this would have never even happened if he would have done a, what he was supposed to do. And so my question, Ted, and I'm not even sure how you answer this, but how did like how do people like Barack Obama just get away with this complete revisionist history that completely removes the role that they play in the way that uh, conditions are uh, playing out today. It's just like how George W. Bush has been uh, uh, sort of rebranded as like your kindly, you know, grandfatherly sort of presence as if, you know, his presidency wasn't marked by, you know, fierce resistance to his racist, uh, hawkish uh, policies and, and things like that. I mean, just what is it about the way that these people twist narratives that, you know, they're able to uh, escape accountability? I mean, I have to chalk it up to the kind of short memories that Americans tend to have. And uh, uh, I, you know, think that even that is uh, uh, generated by the, the the media and the other institutions of knowledge production under this system. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, that's, that it's 
Hey, like you, Sean, I'm a little baffled. I mean, certainly there's no doubt that the phenomenon is real. Uh, you can look at it, uh, you know, time after time after time, you know, people who were uh, widely opposed, like, uh, and who were, uh, you know, like pretty reprehensible, like President Ronald Reagan, um, you know, they are all of their sins are, are washed under the, rug, uh, under the rug when they die and they become hollowed saints in, our, in the American pantheon. Um, you know, part of me thinks that could happen to Donald Trump if he lives long enough. Um, but that certainly George W. Bush, we saw it. I mean, it just, it never ends. And Americans are extremely ahistorical. They, they are just, there is a tendency to just not remember anything that happened before. And part of it, I mean, I don't know. It just, it doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that you see in a lot of other countries. Uh, you know, and, and, but you see it time and time again. I always think of like someone like, uh, you know, Bill Maher, who, used to be a right-wing libertarian and pro-torture. And then, you know, he saw that his career would benefit by moving a little to the left and uh, criticizing the Bush administration after he got fired from ABC. And, you know, he, and then he just started, just started changing. And, you know, now he's kind of a hero of the soft liberals. Uh, you know, Ariana Huffington did this, made the same kind of journey around the same time. And I was fascinated by it because... In a European country, or in really most of the world, uh, a public commentator or public intellectual or pundit like that would have to make some sort, would have to go through a sort of process of saying, you know, announcing, first of all, I was wrong. Uh, Secondly, I apologize. Third, here's how you, here's why you could really believe that this time I really mean it, whereas before I, I said I meant it, but I really didn't. And then it takes years and years and years to sort of slowly get your, to get credibility back, maybe, if people are willing to believe that you've, want, you've really made this uh, transition uh, to a better place ideologically. Um, that's just, in this, in this country, you don't have to do that at all. Uh, you know, you, you can be uh, David Duke, and you can just start suddenly pretending that you've always been a racial justice advocate and just talk that way. And, you know, the mainstream media, after a while, will just take you completely at your word and just, and just you know, and report it accordingly. And then, you know, sure, smart people remember, but <laughs> older people remember, but nobody knows because it hasn't really been reported. It's the most curious thing. I don't know. I know it's true. I just don't know how it works. I've, it's been bothering me for years. I've been trying to figure out, like, what is it about America that allows people to get away with this? And I just don't know what it is. Yeah, I don't I don't know what it is either, because, you know, I think this applies across the board because, you know, the Democrats are once again floating the idea of a Hillary Clinton presidency because, oh, my God, we, we have to make sure that Trump doesn't run again. Now, you know, because this whole gambit to uh, have Trump charged with something uh, through these hearings, I don't think that's going to work out the way they think it will. Um, so, you know, and Biden's popularity, his poll numbers are just absolutely abysmal. He couldn't win re-election if a wet paper bag were his running mate. So now, you know, with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, now the idea of Hillary Clinton, this is a perfect time for her. 
And so many folks will be, I, I guess, galvanized by fear or, or like what you mentioned, Ted, just forgetting how terrible Hillary Clinton is, always has been. The fact that the last time she ran, she chose a, a, a right-wing Democrat who was anti-choice in Tim Kaine. Uh, Tim Kaine. I, we just keep repeating history over and over again, and then wondering how we end up in worse situations than we were four years before. Yeah, we do. Um, and it is, uh, you know, I mean, look, I'm a little biased. I was a history major. Um, I, I love history. I think, you know, you, you really can't understand uh, where we are or where we're going if you don't know history. Um, but uh, you know, we, it's, it's, we can't expect everyone to be a history geek, but and I don't think it's really necessary. And I know part of it is this idea that in America, you can kind of reinvent, reinvent yourself. So that's why, like, you know, Mike Barnacle, who was a play, you know, a proven plagiarist at the Boston Globe um, as a columnist, you know, is now, and for that matter, Joe Biden was a proven plagiarist too, right, in his uh, speeches. Um but like Barnacle can have a you know a swanky, well-paid job on uh, Morning Joe on MSNBC because you know there's we just forget that he committed journalism's cardinal sin, um, you know, and that and I suppose that can work you know in favor of some people. Somehow it doesn't really work for erasing you know your your record though if you were convicted maybe falsely of some felony you know years ago that that's that's never forgotten. You have to tell your future employers forever. Uh, you have to, you, you, you are, you, you can't vote anymore in a lot of states. Uh, but there's, you know, so, so definitely there's sort of two sets of rules like there are for everything else. When, it, you know, you have the right to be, to have your previous sins forgotten if you're, you know, one of the elites. But if you're, you know, if you're in the working class, if you're a normal schlub, you know, no, that's, you know, if you're a small fish, uh, you know, your, your sins are remembered forever. You're defined for that one mistake that you may have made as a young person, and it will follow you forever. So it's, it's very hypocritical. Um, but it's, it, it is, you would really, I kind of would rather see, perhaps, uh, I'd be willing to let the elites off the hook for their previous sins if they were willing to let the rest of us off for our sins, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely seems like uh, the rest of us don't get that same kind of uh, consideration. You know, the funny thing is, Ted, is that as the political situation and the social and economic situation continues to deteriorate here in the United States, I mean, it's clear that we've been brought to this place because of uh, years of neglect and uh, broken promises, excuse me, that have had serious impacts on uh, the rank and file person here in the United States. And so not only is there sort of a refusal to take any real accountability, there's also been this refusal to uh, uh, to really change that it seems to me has sort of uh, taken the Democrats, at least, and put them in a pretty uh, a difficult situation to where they just don't have any credibility left. And as such, uh, the fear of, um, uh, you know, more Republicans coming into power, even if people are against that, which I'm sure they are, 
it just doesn't uh, have the same kind of motivating uh, force that it seems like it had for so long. And so even though we know that these calls from Democrats to vote blue no matter who, we know that that, that they're going to come just like they always are. But no matter how hard they, they scream this, I just don't know that people are going to respond in quite the same way. So in a strange way, Ted, it's almost like uh, liberals have sort of dug their own uh, political graves in a sense. And uh, as it stands now, seems like they very well may be pushed into it by these ongoing militant uh, uh, demonstrations in the streets. Yeah, no, I think I think that's uh, that's totally right. Um, you know, they it, they haven't. You know, the thing is that if you never deliver for your base, your base is eventually going to figure it out and not be there for you. I don't think the concern really so much is that uh, you know Democrats are going to cross over and vote Republican, although that does happen a little bit um, with swing votes. But I think the real issue is, of course, it's just a question of turnout. And you know, just think if you're uh, pro-life Republican right now, you're pretty happy. You know, it's like, well, Donald Trump and the GOP delivered uh, what what you wanted them to deliver and what they said they were they wanted to deliver for decades, and they delivered it. And, you know, I, I disagree with it vehemently, but you do have to credit the GOP for, for, for their persistence and their radicalism and their extremism. And, you know, and you contrast that with how Democrats just don't go to the mat. You know, I mean, I can't, I mean, I got to think, speaking of Obama, I've got to think of Merrick Garland. You know, we would have uh, this extra vote in the U.S. Supreme Court. This vote would not have gone down this way. It was a five to four. It was a five, sort of a six to three, but it's really a five to three decision because Roberts did not vote to overturn, right? So if Obama, instead of going to Martha's Vineyard and kicking off for the summer of 2012, had decided to, uh, I'm sorry, 2016, had decided to really push hard to get Merrick Garland uh, nominated and in, onto the bench, this would not have happened this time. This vote would not have occurred. And then you could, that goes double because he sort of asked Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was really old and dying of stomach cancer, hey, you know, would you mind stepping down? Again, he didn't press her. By all accounts, it was he, he asked politely. She said no. So but Obama gave up two votes in the U.S. Supreme Court, just basically just like, oh, well, shrugged his shoulder. And she was replaced by a right wing ideologue when she died under Trump. So, um, but, you know, I mean, it's 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 an obscenity. The, so, if you're, you know, if you're a pro-choice Democrat who's upset about this. Well, you know, how is voting Democratic going to get abortion rights back for people in the in the red states? It's just why would you think it would? I mean, they they didn't care ever before, and they haven't even indicated that they've learned a lesson from this. Yeah, and Jackie, the fact that we're even seeing this thing suggested about uh, Hillary Clinton running in 2024, I mean, it reminds me of all those articles we got uh, in, in 2016 where it's like, here's how Hillary can still win. You know what I mean? It's like people still have this 
fantasy in their heads about Hillary being elected and we never live under a Trump presidency and, you know, everything would be peachy keen and the, you know, the, you know, streets are made of gold and the rivers run with milk and honey and things like that, which of course is absurd. And I think also shows something that we say on the show all the time is that the Democrats really don't have anybody that uh, has both the appeal and the program that could actually uh, encourage people to uh, come out and continue to support Democrats in the way that they did uh, Bernie Sanders. You know what I mean? And so it just feels like in so many ways, Jackie, that uh, the Democrats are showing that they really just have nothing for us. They just have nothing to offer the masses of poor, working and oppressed people. And at a certain point, we got to decide, are we going to continue to uh, go on business as usual or are we going to do the sort of hard work of bringing about something new completely outside of the political mainstream. Yeah, that's exactly true. And I think that in order to get to the second part that we need to bring about something that's completely outside of the mainstream, people have to come to terms with the fact that this system is not broken. It's operating exactly as it was designed to operate from the very beginning, not to represent the interests of working class, uh, a poor and oppressed people. It just was not. So the idea that one can get into the system and work from the inside and change it, throw that out the window because you you cannot change or reform a broken system not to be broken. You can only replace it when it was designed to be, to operate in a limited fashion in the first place. You have to replace it with a system that works for everyone. And that's not going to be done through reforming the Democratic Party with a few progressive politicians here and there. Yeah, and I think people are seeing that more and more. I mean, all of these arguments about, well, we just have to find the right Democrat or we got to get the right folks in there to change the party and all of that. I think that that has been shown for the fallacy that it is. And people are grappling because they're so used to to thinking that. But I think uh, seeing that uh, the force in the streets for uh, uh, the solution that it is. But we're going to uh, leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.